Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Alexi White. And today we're going to be diving into one of 2020's most contentious and most important topics, police violence against Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. So most of us are familiar with following the murder of George Floyd on May 25th by police in Minneapolis. Peaceful protests against police violence erupted across the United States. Peaceful solidarity protests spread quickly throughout many other countries as well. However, contrary to what many white people here in Canada believe, this is not a problem that is unique in any way to the United States. Slavery existed in the colonies that became Canada for over 200 years, though this is rarely discussed. Uh, And this legacy lives on today with racism and police violence alive and well in Canada and Ontario. Here are just a very small number of these sobering statistics. While there is no national agency or police force that maintains statistics on police-involved fatalities across the country, a CBC analysis found that more than 460 people have died in an encounter with the police between 2000 and 2017. 118 were victims of the RCMP and 52 were victims of the Toronto Police Services. Black and Indigenous people are disproportionately represented in this group. In Toronto alone, over a third of the 52 victims were Black, despite the fact that Black people make up under a tenth of the city population. Since April of this year, in this moment where racism is at the forefront of public discussion, nine Black, Indigenous, and racialized people in Canada have died in police encounters. Their names are Regis Korchinski-Paquette, Ijaz Chaudhry, Chantal Moore, Rodney Levi, Stuart Kevin Andrews, Jason Collins, Aisha Hudson, Caleb Njoko, and DeAndre Campbell. So on this Canada Day, I think it is as good a time as any to acknowledge that we have a problem and have had a problem in Canada for a long, long time. The stakes are high and action has been slow on the part of governments of all stripes. And this is maybe why protesters have rallied around calls to fundamentally reshape and reduce the role of policing in our society, which often goes by the shorthand of defunding the police. So to help us with this discussion today, we are so grateful to welcome MPP Laura May Lindo to the pod. Uh, Laura May is the New Democratic Party member of Provincial Parliament for Kitchener Centre. She is the critic for anti-racism. She's the chair of Ontario's first ever NDP Black Caucus and is the former director of equity inclusion at Wilfrid Laurier University. Laura May Lindo, welcome to Ontario Lab. Hello, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Before we dive into the very serious discussion uh, that we're going to have today, I want to take a moment and just help our audience and us get to know you a little bit. Um, You were elected in 2018 in Kitchener Centre, taking 43% of the vote and claiming the seat from the incumbent Liberals. It was your first time running, but you were no stranger to politics before with a deep history of involvement in these issues. And I believe you're related to Alvin Curling, who is Ontario's first Black cabinet minister. So I'm just curious, uh, what got you involved? What convinced you to run? And now that you're there, how are you finding elected life? Um, So uh, thank you for that introduction. It is all true. Uh, Uncle Alvin is in fact my uncle, and he had absolutely nothing to do with getting me to run. I did not see myself as uh, going into politics. That was not part of the master plan. I wanted to be a musician and I wanted to sing with Prince. That was my goal. (laughs) Um, And I am nowhere near it, of course, but that's okay. Um, It was Catherine Fife, the MPP in Waterloo. Um, I had hosted a summit on the status of race and racism on uh, Canadian university campuses when I was working as the director of diversity and equity at Laurier. And because my background, like my master's and PhD are both in education, but looking at equity education and how to address the root causes of racism in this new role at Laurier, I knew that I had to have a different kind of conversation about how we can actually begin to address 
the root causes of systemic racism in post-secondary. And so um, I hosted this summit. Uh, I did so with the senior advisor for Indigenous Initiatives, Jean Becker, uh, who was working at Laurier at the time. And the idea was that we were going to start broad and then get clo- like come sort of closer down to uh, what's happening in individual institutions. So the very first panel were political leaders. Um, and I invited all of the um, political leaders around. I sent out, I was pretty bold, I, I should say, because I was like, Prime Minister, please come to my summit. <laughs> but that's okay. The, the only person that came uh, was Catherine Fife, who was the and remains the MPP for Waterloo. Um, and so she participated in that kind of watched what was happening. And then she started to call me, she would get her staff to call me all the time, invite me for coffee and treats and ask me to run. And I kept saying no, and she is persistent, <laughs> hence being the MPP for Waterloo. And, uh, so one day my name was on a ballot and I was like, it's okay, I'm not going to win. And now here we are. That's my, well, that's my politics story. <laughs> That's awesome. And I mean, you know, I think like uh, uh, any smart uh, politician is going to look at people in their community who are already involved, already moving and shaking and sort of say like, hey, let's, you know, how can we get that person more involved? So good work, Catherine Fife. Um, <laughs> much, much like how on our podcast, we look for people who are doing exactly those things and invite them to come on. So thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> hey, this is exciting. Uh, maybe if we can dive into the policy for a second, um, I want to talk about the the paper the NDP recently released. It's entitled End Police Violence, A Commitment to, to Action. It was released in response to a number of the high profile incidents of police violence. Uh, and in it, um, the NDP calls for a number of things. So I'll go through them very quickly, and then maybe we can dive in in greater detail. So overhauling police oversight, including compelling police officers to cooperate with external investigations, which is something they're not currently required to do, ending carding, which is a practice of stopping and documenting individuals who've not committed a crime, investing in alternative first responders rather than the police to respond to calls related to mental health, addictions, homelessness, and others, demilitarizing the police, giving elected representatives the power to set police budgets and prioritize community needs, investing in programs and support that address the social determinants of health, utilizing an anti-racism, anti-oppression framework, and seeking out community-driven, community-led solutions to community safety and well-being. So there's a ton to dive in there, uh, dive into there, and there's a lot more the report says that uh, isn't captured in that very quick summary, but um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how the report came to be, uh, what kind of response you've seen so far to the paper in the House uh, from the other parties, perhaps, um, and you know how those conversations are, are evolving. Oh, for sure. Um, so one of the things that was quite fascinating is that as the chair of the ONDP's Black Caucus, we were doing a lot of work um, over the course of the last two years. We've been doing a lot of work uh, with Black communities across Ontario, just trying to get a sense of not really their experiences of anti-Black racism, because there's more than enough reports. They're actually, the other reports are listed in, in this policy paper, right? Mm-hmm. We've had report after report after report shelved that's supposed to be the report that's going to you know start to push the government to address anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. Um, and so we, in doing that work, I don't think any of us thought that A, we would end up in a pandemic, or B, that we would see in 2020 the number of deaths at the hands of uh, law enforcement here. Part of it, yes, we know that there's a long history of that, but 
it's as though each time that we lose another person and we add another name to that long list of names that this podcast started with, it's still just as shocking. And it's 2020. So you kind of assume that we would have dealt with some of these issues in some way, shape or form. When the province sort of shut down because of the pandemic and there were still deaths, I think that that was part of what prompted the world to start to stand up and say, this isn't what we want. And with COVID, we've been able to, like there's a, a an automatic space carved out for all Ontarians to start to think about what is the Ontario that we want to rebuild, right? There's a lot of language around, it's going to be a new normal and when things go back to normal. And I think a lot of people in a lot of areas, from housing to uh, healthcare, to education, to seniors, uh, to job creation and wealth creation, they don't want to go back to the normal because that wasn't working for us. Then you add that layer of being Black, Brown or Indigenous in Ontario when we're still fighting to be represented in, in curriculum, when we're still fighting to be um, treated with the love, care and respect and dignity that other people are treated with. It kind of created an opportunity for us to respond to the defund the police calls with an actual plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this, this policy paper provides a vision that's hopeful. It talks about things that literally the government could do right now, some of which, I mean, let's be honest, uh, governments prior could have done. Because as I said before, there's already loads of reports about this, but there are things that we can actively do right now. And most importantly, there's a vision of an Ontario where literally everybody is cared for. Um, and so I'm actually quite excited about the paper. We've gotten really, really good response. Um, it's circulating on social media. We're doing little mini conversations with folks as well. We've not actually had an opportunity to, to bring it to Queen's Park officially because this happens to be our constituency week. So none of us are, are technically at Queen's Park. But my hope is that next week we'll have an opportunity to ask some questions that are directly connected to the policy paper. And then you can invite me back and I'll tell you more. <laughs> Would love that. Um, uh, I want to talk about the the paper a little bit. And it is an excellent paper. When I read it, I noted that it foregrounded better police oversight, uh, taking away police equipment, investing in alternatives to policing, and sort of a, a, a like a comprehensive set of reforms. But it didn't actually recommend reducing police budget. It, it uh, recommended giving city councils more authority to oversee police budgets, which we'll get into a little bit. But I, I imagine that in the creation of this, with the profile of the defund the police discussion, there's probably a lot of discussion uh, that went into where the paper landed. Um, so I'm curious uh, if you can maybe take us through how the paper developed, why it landed in the place uh, that it did, and in what circumstances do you think municipalities should be looking to reduce police budgets? Um, that's a really good question. And I'm I honestly... Uh, pretty humble to be able to speak about this. So part of what we've done and what we would what we typically do is when you're going to try and address um, a big issue that actually impacts so many people, you have to shop it around, right? You've got to do mm -hmm. consultations about the concept before you even get the policy paper together. Um, and based on those conversations, it became acutely clear to us that Depending on where you are, the issue around funding for police services is different. So if you think like far north, right, um, 
in in northern indigenous communities, the reality is that for a lot of the indigenous police services, they're underfunded. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because of the root causes of anti-indigenous racism, which is literally what we're trying to address, right? And in other areas, they're overfunded. And so we see ballooning budgets in some places, but we see um, an, un, a systemic underfunding of services that are meant to protect and uh, support people when they're in crisis. And so a blanket, uh, you know, a blanket nod to we've got to defund isn't actually addressing the needs in specific areas across the province. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure happened with this document is that everybody across the province could come behind the call to literally invest in people's lives. Um, and that concept of investing in lives, I have to tell you, I was um, there was an article that was circulating um, about uh, a death in the Thunder Bay jail. And uh, my colleague, uh, Saul Mamakwa, who's the MPP for Quitnung, um, it, it happened to be his nephew. And so there has been talk at Queen's Park about what's happening in our criminal justice system, what's happening in jails and prisons across the province, what's happening um, when people have encounters, marginalized folks have encounters with the police. And um, he had shared the article on social media and another um, amazing advocate actually in town here in in, uh, Waterloo region, Lori Campbell, had shared it and just put hashtag invest in lives. And that, that, for me, it stuck out. Because literally, if we want to address the root causes of any kind of injustice, you've got to respond with investments. And so investments in education, investments in mental health, investments in employment supports, investments in the sort of reintegration and transitionary programs that folks are going to need because Black, brown, and Indigenous people are overrepresented in our criminal justice system. And so even as we make a move to make a a more equitable world, there are people that are still caught in the old system that are going to have to be provided with additional care so that they can actually navigate the new system. Um, And so I uh, I think for me, the most important piece of all of this is that we were listening to community. And what community is saying to us is that uh, we need to invest. We need to invest in things and change the sort of the value systems that we've been operating with uh, at Queen's Park and throughout the province. And given that we're in these positions of leadership, we're in these positions of influence, uh, the time was ripe for us to actually put all of the fighting that we had been doing in separate areas and in separate sectors into one space. So now you have a vision of how we can get there. Um, and now the big work is for us to start taking bits and pieces of it and figuring out um, part of that, the legislations that, that would have to change. Which brings me to the other part of your question, which is around the municipalities having more oversight. Um, as we were doing, of the police budget, sorry. Um, as we were doing some of this research, we realized for some municipalities, I think for all the municipalities, but, you know, let's just think, I'm, I'll tell you what was happening in Waterloo Region. The municipality here gets a like one line for the police budget. They can't change that. And in fact, even if the fight um, to take some of that police budget and put it somewhere else is a go, 
they would not have control over the removal of that funding and the redistribution of it. And so when we started to look closer at how the police budgets are formed across the province, we realized municipalities that are closer um, to what's happening to communities on the ground, they need to be empowered to actually do the investing. And that's part of the part of what it is that we're asking for in the document so that we can actually start to do the work of investing in um, black, brown and indigenous lives. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a, a lot of people don't realize how little control elected city councillors actually have over police budgets. Uh, and although they may be able to set overall spending, the, the line by line decisions are made elsewhere. Uh, and it's, it's very opaque and it's um, difficult for people to to uh, to see uh, that level of accountability where they can feel confident in the system and that it's listening and that they understand where their voice is being heard and how to apply pressure for change when they want to do that. So I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, how how does the NDP plan to um, so for instance on on this proposal, the Toronto City Council has voted very recently this week that they're going to ask for changes to the Police Service Act to allow municipal leaders to approve or uh, disapprove specific items in the police budget. So uh, how does the NDP then help to push that conversation forward? Uh, at Queen's Park, um, since it seems like Toronto City Council is uh, right on side with what you guys are recommending? Well, I think actually a lot of city councillors across the province are alongside with the idea of the investment piece. Like nobody would argue that you should not invest in Black, Brown or Indigenous lives. I mean, I don't want to know that person. Let's just put it that way. However, uh, what I have noticed in the short time uh, that I've been in politics is that in order for some of these bigger changes, like this is a, a value shift that we're asking for, to be perfectly honest. And in order for those changes to happen, a lot of people on the ground are waiting for the nod from the province, right? If the provincial leadership says this is a go, then they will you know, move everything to make sure that they can do what is best for the people in their areas. I think the, solidar- the grassroots nature of the solidarity rallies Um, The fact that you saw Black and Indigenous people standing together side by side across the province, and you still do, like these rallies are still going on. Um, You see them standing side by side, demanding that we address uh, police violence, that we uh, address anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism in schools, in in workplaces, all of this kind of stuff, in healthcare. Um, It empowers the municipal leaders to start asking for bigger things. So I've, I've just sort of stick a pin. I'm Jamaican. So my parents will say stick a pin and then they'll talk about something totally different. So that's what I'm doing right now. And um, so I had a conversation actually with um, a counselor uh, and I was talking to them about some of the things that people in these solidarity marches have been demanding. And the response to to the demands was, oh, that's not within my purview. Uh, Just yesterday, I was speaking to somebody else, um, one of the people that was organizing one of the solidarity rallies, and they voiced real frustration with the fact that when they did approach political leaders, whether it's municipal, federal or provincial, um, and asked them about, you know, how can we put into action the stuff that everybody's putting out statements and saying that they agree with. Um, all of these investments that have to happen to address these inequities, uh, they were often met with, oh, we don't have the power. And I remember I said this to the counselor I was talking to, and I said this to the other person I was speaking to yesterday. Um, We have to start seeing ourselves as empowered. 
in these positions. We are in positions of, of influence. So sure, maybe you can't deal with the police budget because that's not within the legislative power, but can you pick up a pen and write a letter? Because if you write letters to the premier and say, hey, we need to be empowered to do this, that puts pressure on. That adds to the voices of all of these grassroots organizers who are fighting for the literally our lives. Um, it's something that I have to do. I'm a member of the official opposition. I wish I could just wake up one day and you know, try and pass legislation. It's not the way that it works when you're a member of the official opposition. I write a lot of letters. I make a lot of videos. I make a lot of noise using the power and the influence that I have to be able to bring voice to discussions that people, people don't necessarily want to have. And so I think what we are also seeing is that people that may not be able to um, address like the, what we think on the outside would be the easiest way, like that, that straight path forward to addressing police violence. Um, they may not be able to do that, but they're starting to wake up to the idea that they can be part of the solution. And whether that's, you know, talking to the premier or talking to government officials and asking for something in particular so that they can have more control over these investments, or it's even like reaching out to us in the official opposition and speaking to us about what it is that is a roadblock for them so that they can stand with us as we start to table, um, you know, recommended legislation or private members bills or set up meetings, whatever it is that we have to do at Queen's Park. Um, and I think that that that's the part that keeps me hopeful, even in the midst of my sadness at the amount of people whose lives we keep losing. Um, there's this little bit of hope that people are starting to see, even if you don't have ultimate power, you still have influence. And if you use that, um, there's a possibility of, of creating a world that we actually will all feel safe in. Yeah. And I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about hope, um, uh, particularly um, uh, in sort of light of the Toronto City Council vote this week, which I think a lot of people wrote letters maybe for the first time, um, called their city councillors, called the mayor. Uh, I tried calling the mayor and like his voicemail was full for days. Yep. Um, uh, and I think a lot of people left that vote uh, being disappointed and I think rightfully so. But, you know, I, I do wonder with this uh, part, part of the motion that did pass was, you know, the request for the province to open the Police Services Act. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, even if some of the more centrist city councillors can get behind that idea, if, you know, a, 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 if, if, a, uh, if that can build some moment, like cross political spectrum momentum mm -hmm. as that ask comes to Queen's Park um, and, you know, Opening up the Police Services Act opens up the opportunity to talk about a lot of things. So, you know, For I think sure. um, uh, I, I really I, I took a lot from your comments that, um, you know, there's reason for uh, hope and engagement and optimism and asking what we can do as opposed to sort of like, you know, just being disappointed, even though I think there's a lot to be disappointed uh, from. So thank you for, for that. Listen, that's my pleasure. And I would just add one little piece to that. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but. Uh, here I am in uh, Kitchener. So in Waterloo Region, we have our Solidarity Rally. And my office has literally received over 200 emails from primarily non-Black, non-Indigenous, and non-racialized people demanding that um, anti-Black racism be declared a public health crisis. 
uh, demanding that we end police violence, demanding that we rethink policing budgets because we know that there's a finite amount of money that the province is working with and investments that have gone um, ignored for so long, we need to rethink that. And with that amount of public pressure, um, it forces me to have to do something like it makes me as the MPP have to do something because literally those are my bosses, right? And so they're telling me what to do and I have to do that. I'm not the only office in Ontario that's inundated with these letters. And I know that's the case because a lot of people are CCing me and they're writing directly to the premier. They're writing directly to um, the other, uh, you know, in Waterloo region, it's three conservative MPPs and then myself and Catherine uh, Fife who are NDP. And so they're writing to all of us within the region. And so knowing that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of emails out there from people who are, who are demanding change from us, that is, that is even more hopeful. That should provide us with more hope than just the city councillors. Do you know what I mean? But sometimes I think that even before this, I would argue that um, we had, there was a lot of apathy. If you look at the at the um, the voting records, for instance, like how many people actually go out during the elections and vote? Um, how many how many people uh, are putting putting pen to paper and writing letters to their councillors, their mayors, their MPPs, their MPs about issues that that really impact them? It's often the same people, right? There there's a whole dearth of people that don't even know that making that connection could result in a difference. And that's not their fault. It's because there are a lot of MPPs, MPs, um, you know, uh, councillors that didn't necessarily want to wade into treacherous waters like let's address racism in a real way. And so people have found other ways to do their advocacy. They've plugged into other community organizations to try to, to deal with the impact of racism. Um, I really, really feel that we can't have this conversation, not about the policy paper, not about these votes at, at the city councils, um, without paying attention to the fact that this is literally happening during a pandemic, like during a pandemic. And so that pandemic, as horrible as it is, and um, as difficult as it is for the lives that we've lost to COVID, uh, it has provided us with an opportunity to do things differently. And we're, we're stuck at home having to think about uh, what has worked, what has not, what we want to see, what kind of world we want. Um, and I think that that's also providing us with a bit of, an, of a space to start really talking about what pieces of the puzzle we would have to put in place to make sure that we don't rebuild a new Ontario post-COVID that leaves uh, Black, Indigenous and other racialized folks behind. So I uh, wanted to ask, um, the paper points out, I think, correctly uh, that, um, and this is a, a little bit of self-accountability, that the previous liberal governments often acted um, too late and with too limited a scope on anti-racism initiatives and police reform. Um, as an example, Ombudsman reports in 2008 and 2011 recommended changes to police oversight, but the bill enacting those changes only came in 2018. 
Uh, also throughout the Liberals' time in government, Ontario remained the only province in Canada where police cannot be suspended without pay until mm-hmm. uh, they're sentenced to jail time, though limited circumstances, I think, were introduced where police can be suspended without pay in the most recent iteration of that bill. Um, so for folks who might be involved in the Liberal Party, and we have a lot who listen to this podcast, uh, what do you think the most important thing for them to know about the previous government's record is, and what lessons can we draw from it? So... I ha- when the Liberals were embarking on trying to um, actively address racism in Ontario, I was not involved in politics at all. So what I, the reason I'm prefacing my comments with that is because I, as the Director of Diversity and Equity at Laurier, um, as somebody who had you know a master's and PhD where this is all I did for far too many years, I talked about racism and how to address it. Um, and as a black woman with children um, who are also black, uh, I was hopeful. I remember when the liberals came to do their consultation around the anti-racism directorate. Um, they were going to skip Kitchener, but uh, I, at that point I had met Catherine and I was asking her to write letters to try and uh, get them to come here and that kind of stuff. And uh, so they came here and I went and participated in the consultation that they had around what we wanted to be in the directorate. Um, I was hopeful because they were engaging in a conversation that I had never actually witnessed politicians engage in, right? Um, and so that was awesome. Uh, they put some some pieces in place, also cool, because it's important for leadership uh, to recognize that we need to have an eye on Um, what anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism and Islamophobia actually look like when we're developing new policies, um, regulations, legislation, all of that stuff. Jump ahead now to when um, I now become an MPP and I'm holding the anti-racism critic portfolio and the citizenship citizenship and immigration critic portfolio. And I started to... um, investigate like what that's part of your job as a member of the official opposition is to figure out like what's going on in the area that you're the critic for and I realized uh, fairly quickly that a lot of what was presented to us on the outside was not actually what was happening on the inside when it came to how uh, the liberals had organized themselves to start to address uh, racism and so for example um, the I know that the call from outside uh, of, of government when they were doing the consultations was to have the anti-racism directorate um, or secretariat uh, be separate from government so it could sort of advise on and that it was supposed to be both inward facing to address you got to clean up your own backyard before you start to do the work outside. So addressing uh, racism in all its forms in government, as well as doing the work outside. And some of that outside work was, uh, for instance, to make sure that organizations, uh, grassroots organizations, community organizations that had developed over time to fill gaps where the government hadn't stepped in, um, that they were provided with the funding that they need to, to stabilize the work that they were doing. Because a lot of those organizations were going by uh, project funding, Uh, which meant as soon as the project was done, they had to spend all of their time trying to find new projects and they couldn't sustain um, the work in community. Uh, And very, very quickly, I realized that the directorate was sort of in-house. It was in cabinet. It was only focused or focused primarily on what was happening inside the government. 
And some of the funding, like the Black Youth Action Plan, for instance, was funding that um, from we were told outside was part of the directorate. It turns out it wasn't part of the directorate. And I found that out, thankfully, just before the conservative government was getting ready to cut the funding. And so I say all of that um, because we have to make sure that what we ask of government is that they create stable um, ways to sustain this work. Because anti-racism work is a commitment, right? To do that work is a commitment. And you can't, um, you get thrown right off the, the game if, you know, this, the roots of, or the foundation of um, the entity that you're creating to oversee this work is sort of barely on the ground, right? There should be no directorate or secretariat that within two seconds you can just dismantle, right? Um, or that can't tell you uh, in real terms what the impact of the work of that uh, directorate is doing. I can't find um, progress reports about what the directorate itself was doing. We couldn't find um, any kind of indication that the government was sort of taking any anybody that received money, for instance, through the Black Youth Action Plan. Um, there were 70 organizations that were funded through that, uh, I think it was 40, 47 million that they had set aside. Um, and in the first round, it was 70 organizations. They haven't been doing like impact assessments to see if they're addressing the systemic nature of racism, which is what the organizations thought they were contributing to. And so was it done in, in good faith? I want to believe that they were trying. But I think that part of, but that's, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, and it's a lesson that I learned from Uncle Alvin. So Uncle Alvin said to me, every single political party wants the best Ontario in the world. They use different tools to get there. And so I, I want to believe that they wanted to do good work. Unfortunately, um, the setup for that work was, wasn't, strong enough to sustain the work, which makes me believe that they may not have actually been aware of how deeply embedded racism is in our province. Um, and when I think about the current government, it feels like I'm, I'm sort of having the same arguments over and over again. You can say you know systemic racism exists, but if you actually understood, then you wouldn't be passing the kinds of legislation that you're passing or making the kinds of statements that you're making. Um, and so overall, I believe that this particular policy document to end police violence actually provides us with, with some investments that would start to get to those root causes. And once you start to do that work, that's where the anti-racism be, work becomes sustainable. Then I guess turning to the future, uh, I'm interested in where you would like to see the anti-racism uh, work go, uh, building on uh, what foundation does exist. So I mean, there, there is an anti-racism act. Uh, the anti-racism directorate is um, uh, per, like created through that act, so it, it it does it should hopefully exist as a directorate for for some time until uh, and unless somebody changes that legislation. Um, there is uh, some work done to increase the collection of race-based data, so hopefully we'll have. Uh, a bit of a better sense of what's going on in the future, as you said, um, doing those those um, analyses of what impact we're having is so crucial to knowing how to course correct and whether there are new uh, and different uh, approaches that need to be tried. 
Um, so, so where does where does this go? I mean, if obviously it's difficult with you, with um, uh, speaking from the opposition, but um, what are the what are the big gaps? Like, what are the the three or four things that could really easily be done uh, right away by a government that that really wanted to um, to to tackle this issue? So, I have a couple thoughts. One is. Um, yes, race-based data is supposed to be collected according to the Anti-Racism Act, but during the pandemic, I received a phone call from the Solicitor General who said to me that um, they're going to extend the deadline to, co- to collect race-based data because of the pandemic. So it was supposed to be reported. I'm going to, um, I believe it was like June was when the, they were supposed to be reporting it. They're going to move it to January to give them time to collect Uh, some of the data. And I think she was thinking specifically in corrections. And I remember saying, that's actually the problem. Right now during the pandemic is when we need the data the most. Like we need it to be collected now because there are people that are impacted by um, the emergency legislation that she also released um, that allows police to pull you over and ask you, essentially they can card you. They can ask you for your name, your um, address, they can to find out why you're outside. And I had said, okay, well, if you're going to put that emergency legislation in place, part of what the directorate is supposed to be advising government on is to say, collect the race and or ethnicity of that person so that we can find out if black, brown and indigenous folks are being uh, stopped more than their white peers. Um, But she felt that that would be too onerous. And so I tell you that to tell you this, also another Jamaican saying. I tell you that to tell you this. If we don't believe that there's any value in collecting the data, um, if we don't change that value, that starting point, then it doesn't actually matter what piece of legislation we have in there because the government has the power to not follow through. Like they can just change, they literally just change the, um, the regulation that said when the data was supposed to be Uh, presented and reported out. And so I think that there's a lot of internal education that has to happen with government around why um, doing the anti-racism work that's being asked of them is, is important. I think that there's also the need to make sure that the directorate provides funding to community organizations who not only Um, are experts in doing this work, but have the community's trust to do this work. And uh, one of the other issues that we found is that with the last budget, the conservative government uh, took away any money that could actually be transferred from government to outside organizations. And Mm -hmm. so if we, I don't think that we have to reinvent the wheel. I think that what we have to do is trust that the organizations who have already been doing this work just need to have stable funding. And that investment will actually um, provide us with much greater return than if the government itself decides it's going to start to make brand new things and have to find a way to become trustworthy to people who have been hurt um, by various arms of of it for so long, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we've talked a couple times on this podcast about how there's this trend in government uh, to move power out of and policy out of legislation into regulation and sometimes out of regulation and into uh, like ministers policies and and stuff like that. And um, it it does create this 
uh, like you said, a shaky foundation um, as a sort of a governing strategy and an approach. And I think that like folks in the policy community uh, can, you know, value expediency, but not always understand what that expediency um, comes at the cost of sometimes, which is, you know, and I think you just pointed out directly impacts this work that we, you know, um, want to support. So um, I remember not- doing a, um, I was doing a talk in a social work class over the summer, I think it was uh, last summer. And I was saying to them, um, I used to believe that all of the change that we should be demanding to address racism is uh, through legislative changes. And now because of being inside the belly of, I would call it the beast, but in a good way, a nice beast. Um, But being in this role right now, I've realized all of that power is being, it's in the regulations because the regulations are what actually animate the legislation. It's the decisions around what that's actually going to look like on the ground. And that's being done behind closed doors. Right. And so some of us that are um, that are elected officials here actually have experience doing this work. And it's part of why we're trying to um, ensure that uh, there are there's more information in what in the legislation so that there's literally more accountability, um, especially from the public uh, around um, how how we're going to build the world that we want when it comes to. Uh, addressing racism, um, ensuring that there's more information in the legislation gives many of us who have expertise in this area an opportunity to debate it, to talk about best practices, to, you know, to be in committee when they go and do the line by line and decide which pieces need to be in there and that kind of stuff. Um, But right now there's this tendency to throw it into this other area and then we move on right? Like we as MPPs, we move on to the next piece of legislation in the next fight. Um, and in the meantime, uh, we, we don't see uh, or we don't experience the realities of what happens when you sort of don't do the, take the job to its logical end, right? And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to send a huge thank you to MPP Laura May Lindo for coming on the podcast. That was a fantastic discussion. I don't care what your political party is, what your thoughts about political parties are. The NDP's discussion paper on police violence is fantastic and you should read it. Thank you also to Zara Habib uh, in the constituency office for helping to make this happen. If you have thoughts, follow us on social media. You can get at us at @ontarioloud or ontarioloudmail at gmail.com. I want to also recognize our Patreon supporters who make this all happen. You, if you like our pod, you can support it on patreon.com slash OntarioLoud uh, or go to OntarioLoud.ca and hit that Patreon link. I want to close by saying I'm glad this pod is coming out on Canada today since we need to do more as a country to recognize our colonial history. Uh, you can start by engaging with this topic, reading about our treatment of black and indigenous people. And once you've done that, maybe enjoy some of the weather if the weather's nice. I don't know. I'm recording this night before Canada Day, so I hope it's going to be nice. But if it's not nice, maybe stay inside. Okay. I'm clearly fading. See you Friday for our regular news pod and have a great day.